0: But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put, put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Mishmash to Ajalon, yeah, right. and the people were very worried. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil, and took sheep and oxen and calves, and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and take spoil among them until morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, "Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand, into the hand of, the, of Israel?" But he did not answer him on that day. Saul said, "Draw near here all you chiefs of the people and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, Though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, and I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me and more. Also, for you, you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, And the Philistines went to their own place.
1: Amen. As I mentioned, this is a continuation from two weeks ago. Uh, I would have preached this entire sermon two weeks ago, but I didn't want to keep you here for three hours. And so we so we broke this text into two pieces. This uh, passage of scripture, this section in the book of First Samuel. And today we're just going to be looking at verses thirty-seven through forty-six, the last nine verses, uh, just to remind you of where we have been, what we discovered two weeks ago in the verses leading up to verse thirty-seven. Uh, one, we we discovered that God has chosen for Himself a king. This is King Saul. God chose King Saul. God anointed King Saul. He did so through the prophet Samuel. God has raised this man up to deliver his people from the Philistines. God has chosen a king for himself. The second thing we realized is this. The Holy Spirit had previously moved Saul to worship and to worship. War. The Holy Spirit moved in Saul's life, moved Saul to worship when when Saul approached the high place at Bethel, and he moved Saul to war shortly following that so that Saul would be confirmed as king. Yet, and this is where we see the third realization that we make, yet Saul has continued, and we've seen this pattern in Saul's life, Saul has continued to rebel against God, even after being moved by the Holy Spirit. Even after being chosen and anointed by God, Saul has continued to rebel against God. His sin is compounding, and Saul will eventually die in his sin. And we can look ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 31 to see the account of Saul's Death, and He he dies in His sin. And the question that we are asking, the question that we are wrestling with starting two weeks ago and continuing today is, why does it seem like so many people who claim at one time to be Christians and who seem at one time to be really devoted followers of Jesus Christ and people of God, why is it that at another time in their lives they have rejected God? They are filled with sin they can't see god and many are convinced that that god does not exist why is there this great apostasy in our time why do so many people in the younger generations why have they just forsaken god altogether after being raised in church and after being exposed to the gospel and after even claiming to be christian for a time why is this why is this going on why are there so many pastors, teachers in our day who claim to know God and who claim to know the things of God yet when they speak and in their actions it's like something completely opposite than what we see in the Bible comes out. And we see this example in Saul's life. Why is it, or how is it that Saul at one point in his life could be moved by the Holy Spirit anointed and chosen by God used by God could now just have this compounding sin in his life that will lead eventually to his death in his sin. How is this possible? why why does god let stuff like this happen and so this is the difficult question the big question that we are wrestling with starting 2 weeks ago and continuing today and and we'll just read this as as one unit but we'll break it into two parts we'll look at verse 37 first and we'll look at verses 38 through 46 second and we're just going to see this this doctrine of of degeneration the doctrine of degeneration in the life of the unbeliever or in the person who is, has not been chosen by God for salvation verse 37 Saul inquired of God shall I go down after the Philistines will you give them into the hand of Israel but he this is God did not answer him on that day I find this verse to be particularly troubling and the reason I find this verse to be troubling is because we have this account in God's Bible, in the Old Testament text, it tells the story of a man who I think Saul is desperately trying to do the right thing, and I think he's desperately trying, and we covered this last uh, two weeks ago, I think he's desperately trying to obey God, keep God's commandments, keep the people of Israel in line, get them sacrificing the right way and doing the right thing and fasting so that they have success. He's trying to do religious stuff. Is trying to do religious stuff all the time today, uh, whether or not it honors God, right? And here we come to this part in the story where Saul seems to be trying. And God God just does not answer Saul's prayer. He doesn't say, yes, you will overcome the Philistines. He doesn't say, no, you will not overcome the Philistines. And he doesn't say, not yet. God doesn't answer in any of these ways. And the text is explicitly clear. God did not answer Saul. And I find this to be troubling because, and you know this, if you've spent any time at all in Christian circles or in religious circles at all, where, where God is, is talked about, Freely, right? You hear God always answers prayer. He will either say yes or no or maybe or not yet. But God always answers prayer. And, and well-meaning people will say this, and then you get to a verse like this in the text of Scripture that simply says, God did not answer somebody. It causes us to stop, and, and hopefully it causes us to think. And I wonder, what is going on here that, that God just would not answer Saul? It's not, it's not the case that God did not hear Saul, right, according to this text. In fact, if we believe that God is omniscient, having all knowledge, then we believe that He knows everything. That's what it means to have all knowledge, right? If we could just parse this out logically. That's what it means to have all knowledge is that God knows everything. If He knows everything, that includes every word that is spoken by every person, whether in prayer or or not. And so, so God is aware of Saul's prayer. But for some reason, he is not answering this prayer. Now, this verse in Scripture doesn't give us a reason, right? We can't take this verse and extrapolate, oh, this is the reason God is not answering Saul's prayer. We, we would have to make a guess, and we don't want to make a guess. And when we don't want to make a guess, what do we do when we are reading the Bible? We go to other parts of the Bible that explain a doctrine more clearly than we see here. So we want to know why God isn't answering Saul. I don't know about you, but my mind asks the question, why? Why? Why, God, would you not answer Saul's prayer? The key text where a where reason is given is in John chapter 9 verses 28 through 34. Now to set up the context for John chapter 9 here, verses 28 through through 34, there's a man who was born blind, and Jesus healed this man who was born blind and, and the Pharisees noticing that Jesus healed this man who was born blind want to set Jesus up for failure they want to trap Jesus so that they can offer some accusation against Jesus he is a false Christ, he's, he's not the real deal, he is a false prophet is what the Pharisees want to accuse Jesus of and so they bring this blind man into a, a public place, a, a trial of sorts and, and they're trying to persuade him or his, his mom who says don't ask me ask him, he's an adult, he can answer for him Right, try and persuade him to lie about what happened with Jesus. You really could see before, couldn't you? And they try to get him to lie in this way, and that sets up the context for what we see in John chapter nine, starting in verse twenty-eight. They, the Pharisees, reviled him, the blind man, or the man who was formerly blind at this point. They reviled him and said, "You are his disciple. You are Jesus's disciple." but we are disciples of Moses you follow Jesus but we follow Moses we know that God has spoken to Moses but as for this man Jesus we don't know where he is from the man the the man answered and said to them well here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. What a testimony to Christ. Verse 31, we know, there the man who is formerly blind, referring to himself, and everyone there who is a Jew, and who has been exposed to the Old Testament Scriptures, and who learned these things growing up, right? We know that God does not hear Sinners. Now, the word hear there is in the active form, so it could be translated like something like God does not listen to sinners. This doesn't refer to God's ability to know what is being said or what is being prayed. This refers to God's actively listening. God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is God fearing and does his will, he hears him or he actively listens to him verse 32 since the beginning of time it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing and they the pharisees answered this man who's formerly blind you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us So they put now the Pharisees, they're teachers of the law, right? This is kind of insulting that someone would come in and tell them that they don't know what they're talking about. You are born entirely in sins as if they're not born in sin too, please. You were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us? So they so they put him out. Don't tell us what we know. We're not willing to engage in genuine, sincere dialogue here about the man, Jesus Christ. We've already made up our minds. If you're going to tell us something different, then you are not welcome here. That's what's being said. The blind man, uh, or the man who is formally blind, right? Formerly blind, not formally blind, formerly blind. In verse 31 when he says we know that God does not hear sinners he's he's actually alluding to several verses in the Old Testament. For those of you taking notes, let me just list these verses for you so you can look at them later. Job chapter 27 verse 8 and Job chapter 35 verse 13. He is alluding to Psalms chapter 34 verse 15 and 66 and 18. Uh, 66, 18, 145, 19. He is alluding to Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 29. He is alluding to Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 9. And he is alluding to Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 15. All of those verses which in some way say, God does not listen to those who are not in Him, His true spiritual children, or... God listens to those who are righteous, not with the righteousness of their own, but with the righteousness that comes from God alone. God listens to those who are clothed in His righteousness. And so we know from the the testimony of this man who was once blind, but Jesus has, has healed him and his allusion to the Old Testament Scriptures throughout the Old Testament, right? His allusion to these texts that say something very significant about God. We know that God actually is part of who He is in His essence that He, though He knows was someone who is in sin, not clothed in his righteousness, not fearing God or caring about the will of, of God, that God does not listen and he does not answer the prayer of this of this person. Does this strike anyone else as just new and exciting? <laughs> but that those who are clothed in God's righteousness that, that he does Listen to their prayers actively not merely knowing what they're saying, but he does listen to their prayers actively And he does answer them whether his answer is yes or no or not yet And i've had god answer my prayers in all of those ways, right? Yes. No, not yet Maybe I know my answer, but it's a maybe for you. I don't want you to know the answer yet, right? And god is pretty good at explaining himself uh, when he does that, and he explains himself through, through his Bible, why he answers prayers the way that he, the way that he answers them, right? Uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, his name is Nathan, and I can't pronounce his last name, which is probably why he simply goes by NF. Uh, he is a hip-hop artist. I thought I would rap for you this morning. Please don't. I told, I told him on Wednesday one time. One time I started out a sermon by rapping for the congregation and the next Sunday the house was packed. (laughs) And they said, please don't, so I won't. But if it accidentally happens, please don't hold it against me here. N.F., in his song, Oh Lord, which is on his album, Therapy Session, sings, raps, hip-hop's lyricizes this. You see, the same God that you say in might not even exist becomes real to us, but only when we're dying in bed. When you're healthy, it's like we don't really care for him then. Leave me alone, God. I'll call you when I need you again. Which is funny. Everyone will sleep in the pews. Then blame God for our problems like he's sleeping on you we turn our backs on him what do you expect him to do it's hard to answer prayers when nobody's praying to you and this artist hits it like why why would god what obligates god to answer the prayers of people who don't care about him god is not obligated to us right what uh, praise the lord for good music. Now, not everybody likes hip-hop, right? But I do, and I'm unashamed about that. <laughs> not, everybody, not everybody likes hip-hop, but praise God for good music with theologically rich lyrics. And people who aren't afraid to, to talk or rap or sing about real stuff, Right? what the Bible actually says. You expect God to listen to your prayers when you're over there claiming that He doesn't exist. And people will use the fact that God doesn't answer some prayers. And the Bible is pretty clear. God really does not answer some prayers. It's just there. It's explicitly in the text. And He tells us why He doesn't answer some prayers. It's because we don't fear God and we don't care about His will. And so God, God just says, okay, if that's the case, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not obligated to listen to you. And I'm not going to answer you I'm devoted to my children and this is the way this is the way God is the way he operates and we see this in the life of Saul here and we realize this in our in our own lives and it causes causes deep reflection right like okay I'm praying and it feels like God's not answering and the scriptures re- reveal something very significant about our own lives right that's evidence for us maybe we ought to think about the relationship we have with a sovereign and a holy God like if if my prayers aren't being answered do I belong to God in Jesus Christ and like receiving a a no or a not yet is different from not having prayers answered at all right Like I've already mentioned, God is pretty good at explaining himself when he does that. What I'm talking about here is there is no answer from God. God, why are you doing this? We cry out. God, what do you want me to do? We cry out. God, how can I follow you? God, why aren't you making my life right? We cry out with those types of prayers. And worldly people cry out with those types of prayers. And there seems to be no answer. And people will use that as a justification to say, well, God doesn't exist because he doesn't answer prayers. No, God's not answering prayer because you don't fear him. And you're not concerned about his will. And this text is difficult for us to hear. I'm not going to try and justify that or explain that away. That's just that's what we see here in verse 37. There are a couple implications this has for the way we think about God and the way we think about the Christian worldview and, and the way we think about God's Bible and the faith that He has handed to us once for all. One is this. If no one seeks after God or honors God, we can look to Romans chapter 3 for that, right? Where Paul quotes the Psalms and he says, no one seeks after God. No one is righteous, not even one. And Paul writes this. If no one seeks after God or honors God, then it is the case if God doesn't answer the prayer of someone who is still in their sin who doesn't fear god and who who isn't concerned about the will of god then it must be the case that a a person has to be clothed in Christ's righteousness before god will listen to that person now tell me if you you know especially if you spent any time in christian circles at all How many times a well-meaning preacher, I'm not calling, please don't hear me saying this, I'm not referring to every preacher who has ever said this as a false teacher because I don't think that's the case, right? But a well-meaning preacher will stand up and say, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, come to the front, pray, ask Jesus into your heart, and then God will save you. If God doesn't answer prayer before we're in Christ before we fear Him before we seek after Him which is something that only Christ can do then the Bible is actually pretty clear that God doesn't answer that prayer if that prayer is for the purpose of gaining a relationship with Jesus Christ and not to say that God doesn't use that right God does use that, but we have to understand this. Logically speaking, the order of salvation must be that God comes in, regenerates the heart, and then enables us to pray, causing us to seek after Him, turning our attention toward Him. He is the one who must save us. We don't save ourselves by trying to pray to God. That's what's going on with Saul here in this, in this text, right? And so God must enliven us, revive us first. <laughs> regenerate our hearts first and then because of his work in our hearts and our minds then he listens actively to our prayers what we have to say and he cares about what we have to say and he answers our prayers like a good father answers the requests of his children he only does this after he adopts us right right And since God is good, I think we can trust Him with that. The second implication is this. If our prayers are not being answered, it means we neither fear God nor honor His will above our own. God does answer the prayers of His people, even if His answers are no or not yet. And again, I find that God is pretty good at explaining Himself. Verses 38-46. through Saul said, draw near here. Okay, God has not answered Saul, yet he's taking action anyway. What a good idea. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. What sin is Saul referring to here? He's, he's referring to his son, Jonathan, who came and ate. After not God, but Saul ordered the people to fast. And so he's not referring to a sin against God. He's referring to somebody obeying his order or somebody disobeying his order to fast. Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives... Okay, God has not answered him, and now he's swearing by the Lord. As the Lord lives... Another great idea. As the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And we just see this compounding of sin in Saul's life. Now this is going to lead him to murder his son, right? All of this compounding in his life, and he's coming to the point where he's even, because he wants things to be a certain way, for him, according to his will, not the Lord's. And even though he has not heard from God on this. He's about to murder his son. But not one of all the people answered him. They're silent. This is shock. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And and the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. What else are they going to say to the king? Therefore Saul said to the Lord, okay, Lord, you're not speaking to me, but I'm going to tell you. Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Casting lots was something the people did to try and discern the will of God. But if God's not in it, it's not going to the results aren't going to be honorable to him, right? And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, but the people escaped. That means the people were good. Saul's not going to hold any sin against the people. It's not the people's fault. It's either going to be Saul's fault or Jonathan's fault, according to the lots that had been cast. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken, and Saul escaped. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Jonathan is willing to endure the consequence of his his disobedience to his father, Saul, and to the king. Verse 44, Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die Jonathan, another oath that Saul takes, swearing in the name of God, who did not even answer his prayer. Again, I think Saul is really trying. I think he's trying to be religious. I I think, but it just comes back as more sin, more sin, more sin. And no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to get how many of you have felt like that? No matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to do things well or do things right. And we've all felt that way. But here it's like Saul's obedience to God. It's like, why do things seem to be this way in Saul's life and in the lives of so many people today who just, they want to honor God but just can't seem to get it or they want to be religious or spiritual for any number of reasons. They just can't seem to, to get it. This is what we see going on with Saul. Verse 45, But the people said to Saul, Finally, must Jonathan die? who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel. Look, God used this guy, Saul. God isn't answering your prayers, but God is using Jonathan in mighty ways. Haven't you noticed that, Saul? This man, who has brought about a great deliverance in Israel, far from it, as the Lord lives, now the people opposing Saul, swearing by the Lord's name, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, so the people stand up and they defend Jonathan which I think was right. For he has worked with God this day. The people notice what's going on. What's going on doesn't escape Israel. And so the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place so we see this process at work in Saul's life. Compound, and this sin will continue to compound in Saul's life. There's no recovery for Saul. We know that because we can read ahead in the book to First Samuel chapter 31. And we see there's, there's no recovery for Saul. He will continue in sin. And the question we arrive at is just this. How can at one moment, and this is where we'll answer this question, right? How can at one moment somebody seem to be completely devoted to God? And then at another moment, later on, not seem to have any godliness whatsoever. How can someone who grows up in church and hearing the gospel and declaring Jesus as Lord fall away from the church body and and no longer really care about Christ, really? Maybe they still believe, right? But lives don't reflect Christ-likeness or godliness and they don't really care about what Christ has to say to me today or or this week and they don't care about being a part of a body of believers where we come together so that we can build one another up so that we are strong people in the Lord and so that we can encourage one another other and so that we can experience a maturing in the faith and so that we can become perfect and and complete in every way why is this why are there so many people who are so convinced of their own teaching and so convinced of their own relationship with god but they, they just it feels like they're just just hypocrites why why is that the case And again, we don't see why in our passage for today, so what do we have to do? We have to go to the book of James. And we have to see where this is explained explicitly for us in a way that is understandable, right? Now, four weeks ago, if you remember four weeks ago, who remembers four weeks ago? (laughs) I do, but that's because I reviewed, okay? (laughs) Nobody remembers four weeks ago in here, and that is okay. It's not important that you remember every single word from every single sermon because God's doing something bigger than that, right? Uh, He's changing our hearts, and so that's what matters. That's what we want to experience is heart change, life change, becoming perfect and complete people. So if you don't remember these exact words from four weeks ago, it's okay. Four weeks ago, we looked at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And before that, Tom exposited James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I just want to read this again before we go down later in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. There, James talks to his brethren, fellow Christians, those who are in Christ, those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, those who fear God and care about the will of God. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Remember, God doesn't test us so that he can see if we're really following him. God has all knowledge. Remember, he already knows if we're serious about him or not. And the testing of our faith actually produces endurance in our lives. It's for our benefit. That's why we consider it joy. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So for the believer, for the person who is... Truly, a child of God, who has truly been adopted by God, when trials come in life, the result is not a compounding of sin like we see in Saul's life. The result is opposite of that for the believer, right? This is one of the tests that show us if we are really in Christ. Like when I experience trials, does it cause me to be more like Christ? Does it produce endurance in me? Does it rid me of my sin and my lusts? Am I becoming perfect and complete and mature in Christ as a result of of the trials, the tests of my life, the hardship that that God brings for this purpose of producing this within us? We get down to verses 13 through 18, and we're going to see quite the different pattern for a person who is walking in his own lusts, his own desires. For the person who is not in Christ, for the person who is is self-righteous or is trying to figure things out on his or her own, like Saul. Verse 13, here in James chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. There's a difference between God testing us and God tempting us, right? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. He doesn't dangle evil in front of us and go, you want that? God doesn't do that. But each one is tempted. And this is the pattern that we're going to see in, in Saul's life, right? But each one is tempted. When he is carried away, how many, how many people are tempted? Here it says each one, which means it's a place where we all start, right? Every single person on earth is tempted in this way. And if we're adopted by God in Christ... Then the trials that we experience, they're ridding us of this sort of temptation. They're ridding us of our own lust. And we get from the context here, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Some translations will say his own desires or his own evil desires. In verse 15, then when lust has conceived, when it's in there, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, when it is full grown, it, it brings forth death. And this is the pattern that we're going to see in Saul's life leading up to 1 Samuel chapter 31 as we study in the, in the coming weeks or, or the coming months, <laughs> the, the coming years. <laughs> Do not be deceived, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing is given, and every perfect gift is from above, referring to the, the process of sanctification, the pattern of trials and building and perfection that we saw earlier in chapter 1, right? Every good thing given is a perfect gift. It is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It is only by the word of the Lord that anybody can escape this vicious cycle of lust being conceived within them their own lust their own desires bringing forth sin and being accomplished in in the physical and eternal death of the person right this is what's going on so we see two different patterns we see for the believer in Christ is a pattern we call sanctification which is experienced conversion Christ brings you to himself you are adopted as a son or daughter of God, the Most High, Holy God. And at that moment onward in this life, right, we experience a series of trials that actually perfect us, conform us to the image of Christ. And that's called sanctification. For the person who is not in Christ, for the person who is an unbeliever, for the person who does not fear God. And for the person who does not care about God's will, we see we see the opposite process at work in their lives, according to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And it's a process that I'm going to refer to as as a degeneration. Just if you are lost, not adopted by the Father, there's this Spiral downward and downward and downward until death, like a withering dead tree. Right? Unless there is life, there is no growth, there is no maturity, and there is no hope, and there is no chance. This realization helps us to explain some pretty confusing verses in the New Testament, probably the chief of which is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5. And so we'll look at this together so that we know how to think about this text in Hebrews chapter 6. And I'll read verses 4 through 6, and maybe you've heard the multitude of different opinions about this single passage of Scripture. Verse 4 reads this way, "For, For in this case, those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Interesting wording here. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away. Fallen away after all of this stuff. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Just hearing that, you understand why it is so confusing, right? And people who, people who believe the, uh, in the security of salvation, eternal security of the believer, that no, we cannot lose our salvation, look at this passage and we go, what? What? And the person who believes you can lose your salvation, they, they use this verse as justification to believe. See, look, these people are saved. They've, they, they were partakers in the Holy Spirit, and still they, still they have fallen away. And if you fall away, if you lose your salvation, it's impossible to get that back. And they'll go to this verse and, and say that and make those claims. But brothers and sisters, we, we have just seen in, in the Scriptures that when a person is converted there is a process of sanctification. And if a person is living in sin, there is this process of degeneration. And here is what we see, and we just relate this to the life of Saul as we have been studying through the life of Saul in, in 1 Samuel, right? Had Saul once been enlightened? Well, yeah. Sure. He received the news directly from Samuel concerning the kingdom of God. He had been enlightened. He heard the news. Seemed to understand it. And to have tasted of the heavenly gift. Did Saul taste of the heavenly gift? He seemed to be living in relationship with God. He seemed to be. Right? Even if there wasn't regeneration of the heart, Saul seemed to have tasted. This doesn't mean he received it in full. It means he tasted. Tasted means tasted. Not had a full meal, right? And have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Did Saul partake of the Holy Spirit? This doesn't mean indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This means partook. Again, it's the same kind of language as the word taste. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Had Saul experienced this? Yes, the Holy Spirit moved him to worship at Bethel. The Holy Spirit changed Saul into another man," was the exact wording. At Bethel and when he moved Saul to war, and to have tasted the good word of God. And had Saul tasted the good word of God? Yeah. Yeah, the prophet of God, Samuel, literally spoke the word of God to Saul tasted the good word of God and the powers powers of the age to come had, had Saul experienced powers yeah supernaturally defeating an, an enemy army that's that's pretty futuristic right and then have fallen away so Saul never had his heart regenerated the scriptures never tell us that What we learn about the work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is not limited as we are, and so the Holy Spirit works with unbelievers just as the Holy Spirit works with believers. The difference for believers is that the Holy Spirit is a counselor and a guide and indwells the believer and leads the believer, right? So that would be the difference. And so there's, there's no problem there, no contradiction there. Saul had not received salvation, but he tasted these things, was moved by the Holy Spirit, experienced some of the intimate things of God without having a relationship with God. And then Saul fell away and disobeyed God, rejected God. He was trying to somehow earn his own righteousness, which is not in line with the Gospel, right? He was not embracing his own imperfections and, and never will we see Saul actually, you know, really genuinely repent through the rest of the story. It just doesn't happen. And that's why he dies in his sin. And here the, the preacher of the book of Hebrews says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And we're going to see this play out in Saul's life too. Impossible for someone who experiences the Holy Spirit and rejects it flat out outright. To be restored again, renewed again to repentance. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Why? Because of, because of self-righteousness, because God revealed this to them, and they since they couldn't see they they rejected it, right? And this is why Jesus teaches crazy things in the Sermon on the Mount, like there are many who will say to me, "Lord, Lord," and will not be able to enter. I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's about relationship, not just about trying to do some religious thing. And Jesus will say that, and that's devastating for us, right? That's not the stuff we like to talk about. Preacher, what are you preaching about this morning? I'm sorry, we can't skip anything, right? We, we really want to know what God really says here. There's a reason Jesus teaches things like, Lord, Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a reason in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will teach his, his disciples that narrow is the way to life, and few will ever find it, which means few will ever ever see it. And then in John chapter 3, when Jesus teaches, you must be born again to even see the kingdom of, of heaven, right? John chapter 3, verse 3 you must be born again to even see the kingdom of heaven. And being born again isn't our choosing to believe. No, if we can't see the kingdom of heaven, we can't choose to believe in just some blind faith in the kingdom of heaven. Blind faith, as much as people want to exalt that, it's impossible. Our eyes have to be open. We have to be born again before we can believe. There's a reason Jesus teaches crazy things like that. And it's because of, of this, exactly what we see here. Here in this, in this text notice, Saul is even trying to honor God, and I I mentioned this earlier. Saul is even trying to honor God. He is telling the people to to keep the law, but he's telling them to keep the law in a way that's not even lawful. Right? And we saw that, how Saul's instructions actually diverted from the law. Saul is so blind and unable to see God that even though he is trying to honor God, he is growing in his sin. This is what human-centered religion does. This is what human-centered religious teaching tells us to do stuff that is completely impossible. Like somebody gives you some self-help instructions from behind a podium and somehow a podium gives someone authority. Look, I don't have any authority to tell you how to live life. The only authority coming from this pulpit is the authority that just comes with God's explicit word. There's nothing in or of me, I promise. Please don't exalt me ever. That's why we see people who don't actually know Jesus or are trying to honor God or teach God's Bible, but are actually growing in their own sin and persuading others to grow in their own sins. This is how you do it. Look, that's a self-righteous message. That's growth in sin. And they use the Bible as justification for for their actions. And the worst part is that they believe actually believe they are honoring God by teaching these things and living in this way and the bible says something completely opposite of that completely opposite of that brothers and sisters our our hearts ought to ache for those who are mm. lost we ought to have such a burden for those who don't really have a relationship with Jesus that they have convinced themselves that they are living in a way that is God honoring but really the rebellion against God is just compounding and justifying it and believing that hey I'm accomplishing something spiritual or, or religious or I'm becoming just this really great better person look we've, we've seen what that has done in our society right the more we progress the more society just seems to fall apart, the more conflicts people seem to have. That's because we're not being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, because we're not repentant. It's because we're trying to figure this thing out, right? We ought to grieve over those who have tasted the goodness of God, who have been partakers in the Holy Spirit, but have fallen away. We ought to grieve over that, because people have rejected God outright now I need to make a clarification before we move on and the clarification is this just because someone has grown up in church just because someone has heard the gospel at one point in time does not mean that that person really became a partaker of the Holy Spirit there is still hope for the person who grew up in church and fell away Right? that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying there's still hope for that person There's still hope for the person who heard the gospel, but it didn't take, right? Or who got baptized and it didn't take, it didn't stick. There's still hope for that person. The author of Hebrews is referring to something very specific, I think. Unfortunately. We don't have time to exposit that today. We'll have to wait until a future time when we get to exposit Hebrews chapter 6. And Priscilla can't wait to walk through Hebrews. I remember, we're going to walk through Hebrews sometime. And when we finish 1 Samuel, which will be a while. A while is my deadline. <laughs>